This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about international business and globalisation and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today we will be talking to Art Coach consultant, author and speaker and president of Arthur Coach Management Consulting based in Miami, Florida. In his business, Art helps his clients in manufacturing, distribution and financial services to turn operational problems into profits through complexity reduction, inventory velocity and effective measurement and dashboards to keep track of performance. Art's career stretches back to the 1980s and he has held positions of responsibility in the management of materials, manufacturing and supply chain in sectors such as automotive, aerospace, industrial equipment and consumer products. So welcome Art and thank you very much for being here with us today. Not a problem. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome Art. So to get started Art, could you give us an overview, a brief overview of your career to date? I, as I said there, it dates back to the 1980s. So just a kind of a quick Fly yeah, just just real quick. Uh, I actually started off my career as a machinist. Okay. And before I went to university or when I was in high school, I was definitely not college bound. I raced motocross, dabbled with racing cars. Uh, I used to build uh, parts for IndyCar race okay. uh, racers. And then I decided to go to college. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, watched the demise of the automotive industry and said I needed to do something different. My first degree is a degree in biochemistry, and I really couldn't do anything with that. So I thought I'd combined my machining background and my like of work in, fa in factories and earned an MBA in operations. And it was called materials and logistics management back in the day, but today it's been rebranded as supply chain. I see. And since when and how did you come to be an independent business consultant? Uh, back, let's see. I had I was tasked with relocating the factory where I was the operations manager in into China and Mexico. And when it was all done, they wanted me to go run uh, a group of factories in China or become head of supply chain in Mexico. I kind of looked at both the opportunities and I had just been recently married about a year before. My wife and I talked about it with aging parents being that far away from the parents. We thought it would be too difficult. So I took a little bit of time off, thought about what I was going to do. And I said, let me try to do my consulting thing. And I did it. And I'll tell everybody it takes nerves of steel. I think, Patrick, you know that. Yep. My first 18 months were great. Then I hit a six-month uh, lull. Then it took off from there and everything's been good since then. And that was, I started, I hung my shingle out, I think, January of 2010. 2010. Okay, so you get what, 10 years now, yeah? Over 10 years. Yeah, yeah I have I have a friend who became an um, independent business person, and he told me, I asked him about it, and he said, um, I sleep a lot less, he said, but I have a lot more fun when I'm awake. That's true. <laughs> so in your in your consultancy business, what kind of services uh, do you provide? What kind of activities do you get involved in? Uh, I do a lot in inventory management, uh, line side Kanbans, forecasting demand planning. Uh, I've been known by my clients as two things. If they can't fix it, call me and I'll get it fixed. 
and uh, bringing in the unfiltered truth when it comes <laughs> okay. to uh, what needs to be done. Straight talker, huh? Yeah, okay. yeah. It gets me in trouble sometimes, but most people <laughs> like it. Well, you can always, you can always apologize, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've done a lot of that. <laughs> so, um, in your, um, I noticed on your LinkedIn where you describe some of the things you get involved in. You mentioned a thing called inventory velocity. So, what what does that mean? Yeah, I spend a, I, I work with my clients to teach them that I, I use the term inventory is evil also, that we have to focus on the velocity of our inventory or how fast it moves through our organization. Because I have the viewpoint that inventory is a depreciating asset. And if it sits still, you're losing money. So anytime it sits still, you have to get it moving forward. And by teaching them the nuances of how to improve their inventory velocity, I show them that simultaneously with uh, the increase in velocity, they improve customer service. And a lot of people, that's a new thought to them or it's alien. But once they start seeing it, they go, hmm, mm. kind of hits, hits some uh, key chords with them and they realize what they can improve in their business. Yeah. I've um, done business with quite um, a few multinational uh, companies and some of them are quite sophisticated in their um, approach to inventory and they would look to run the business off the minimum inventory that they can. But they also sometimes have this concept of kind of strategic inventory. Um, and I know a number of them, particularly in the pharmaceutical business, they'd hold maybe far in excess of what they need to actually run the, the business as a kind of uh, contingency. Um, and I guess, given what's happened with COVID and the interruption of supply chains, do you see that as a valid kind of approach, uh, you know, building resilience at the expense of efficiency? Or what, what's, your, what's your view on that kind of uh, strategy? Um, I challenge it. I challenge it all the time. Mm. Uh, I, I can see keeping certain raw materials in uh, in a strategic hold or having a supplier with a strategic agreement associated with certain levels of capacity and backing it into the supply chain. Mm -hmm. But I do not believe that you should be holding it strategic and finished goods. Okay, I understand. Okay. Um, and when you look across your, your clients, those you're working with now and you've worked with in the past, how would you describe your ideal client? So who are you looking for um, to work with prefer preferentially? You know, my preferential is somebody that is seeking trans uh, transformation. And they're looking, they're not looking to maintain, but they're looking to make their business better. And they want to hear uh, a contrarian view, so to speak, of how they're doing things. I see. Okay. And typically when clients work with you, what would be two or three ways that they might be better off after working with you than they were beforehand? Um, what I, what I work on with my clients is to the, one of the first discussions I have is the roles and responsibility of the board of directors mm -hmm. and say, you know, supply chain feeds into the board of directors, the board, two things that I feel that impact, uh, what we do in supply chain risk mitigation and the increased valuation of the business. So a couple things that I bring is processes that are sustainable. I have a trademark methodology called Entropy Busters, 
and it involves team engagement, visual management, and transforming the culture to where it's an inclusive culture. Then I work extensively on teaching people, educating them on how to improve their inventory velocity. And by doing or improving their inventory velocity, they improve customer loyalty, which in turn rolls into valuation. And then uh, I have another element, complexity reduction. I have these three rules that I use, arts rules. And rule number three is 1% equals 50%. And what I found, uh, the last 1% of demand or the last 1% of purchases always equates equates to 50% of the product complexity and how to get that out of the, work with them, how to eliminate that and get that out of the business. And by doing that, we hit the key tones or the key task that the board of directors is driven with. And that drives into taking the supply chain and turning it into a competitive differentiate, differentiator uh, for the business. Okay. You, you and I were involved in a panel discussion recently, and um, you said something that kind of made my ears kind of uh, perk up and you, you, you mentioned that people businesses should be looking at business accounting rather than cost accounting do you remember do you remember that and what what did you mean by that well you know um, one of the biggest challenges I see companies have is they look at inventory incrementally and they look at it as a kind of a fixed asset and when I bring the notion or the concept that it's a depreciating asset, it gets people to start thinking about it differently. And an element of the carrying cost of inventory, very often they look at the carrying cost as prime or the amount of money to borrow plus one percentage point as the carrying cost of inventory. And that's only the incremental cost. So what I feel it's important to is to educate clients that the cost of having this goes through all of the soft cost in the organization, also hard cost of warehousing, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to get them to think about it from a, uh, instead of the incremental to a enterprise cost accounting and shifting away from the costing methods that you have. So have you heard the term activity-based accounting? Yes, I have. Yep. Yep, it relates right into activity-based. I see, okay. so maybe- and, and actually, actually, something I did, I'm pulling together, I'm working with a local university here that's just north of Miami, and I hired an intern for next year, and I've already lined up uh, the head of accounting and the head of operations, and we're going to develop a total cost of ownership model over the winter. Okay, so it gives people more insight into the true consequences of carrying excess inventory. Um, so it's all the terms in the equation and not just the incremental term. That's what we want to develop and try to keep it simple to where people can wrap their head around it. Because if it's too much uh, behind Oz's curtain, so to speak, yeah, nobody will believe it. Correct. So um, maybe just taking things up a, a, a level of focus. So when you look at the U.S. right at the moment, Um, on the supply chain in the light of everything that's been happening over the last four years, possibly culminating now with with COVID. Um, What's the contrast that you see in businesses, those that work internationally, whether American companies working internationally, whether they're selling or sourcing abroad, 
and those that do not? Have they a different concept and understanding of supply chain? Well, prior to COVID, uh, the U.S. or the world had already reached its peak of globalization, and it was already starting to pull things back in. COVID definitely pushed it along faster, and I don't see corporations bringing everything back to their home country. They still think about it internationally. However, I do believe they are now looking at the regionalization of where their customers are using the product and how can they regionally produce that or assemble it. Another thing that's really hit, there's a better understanding as we're talking about in the total cost. So they realize they missed the point on uh, the total cost because they're chasing labor and they were enticed by incentives and they realize that that's just uh, not a long-term thinking. But something I think that's unique is I, you know, I talk about my 1% equals 50%. We're seeing more and more businesses that are cutting out their product offerings and eliminating the complexity that they had, saying they went too far. So that's encouraging. Okay. Yeah. So the uh, this w- 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 1% is 50%. You'll find that most of the effort, most of the activity, most of the complication, most of the complexity is driven by a relatively small part of the of the business. And you, if you can identify that, you can cut out a lot of non-value add. I guess that's the concept there, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, when, when you have growth in sales and growth in market share, uh, you hide a lot of uh, sins within the business. As soon as that growth stops, you cannot hide the inefficiencies you have in the business. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you have to look at how can you smartly remove cost within the business without sacrificing uh, the the quality of the product that you supply to your customers, whether it's service or the product itself. And this is one of the examples. Uh, You're seeing it in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, there is an article talking about Coach and uh, who was in their coach, U.S. brands, Kohl's, where they're cutting a lot of the product offerings that they sell because they realized it's just too many and too many different colors and too many options. And they felt with selling across the internet, oh, we can offer all this, but they did not take into consideration what it does back end into their operations. And now that uh, markets or sales are flatline, they're starting to see that impact. And I think it's encouraging because it comes back to the stuff I talk about with my clients. I'm saying, see, there you go. There's some hard proof. It's just not me saying it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess people often don't realize the complexity that drives back when it's a physical product and you've got warehouses and you've got to pick orders and you've got to find storage locations for all of these different physical products. Um, and, and exactly. Yeah. And the cycle counting it and the keeping it in your ERP system and making sure the data's clean, uh, the obsolescence of it. And when it doesn't sell, you have to put it on a uh, reduction sheet to where you sell it at a reduced cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all those soft costs and they build up tremendously. Yeah. Yes. People who can get away with that kind of thing are people who have digital products, you know, like Netflix. So Netflix is a 
huge long tail and it doesn't really matter. Like you can find uh, obscure tur- Turkish historical series or, or Korean movies or whatever you like and they might make a few pennies here and a few pennies there but it all adds up and for them it's a different, it's a different world. You know, you're exactly right and with a, with a couple of my clients, we've really pushed to put in additive manufacturing or 3D printing for service parts to where they don't stock this material, mm-hmm. to where they, you know, print it or manufacture it on demand. And that's where I see us going long term for this long tail. However, the physical uh, the physical transformation isn't in place everywhere where technology is there, but not everybody has the capability of applying it. Of course. Uh, with the incoming new administration in the U.S. now, how do you see the agenda shifting in relation to U.S. companies as regards this idea of offshoring, nearshoring, reshoring, corporate tax they pay, and all of these types of things? Oh, that's a that's a fun question. <laughs> um, I you know there's there's part A and part B to that. Thinking out loud, I think part A there's not going to be much, and. In the Democratic Party, uh, there's going to be so much infighting for the first 18 months to two years of Biden of Biden's administration that they're not going to get much done. Okay. Yeah. Uh, however, if they do get past the infighting, the things that will get done is possibly there could be some reversal on some of the tariffs that the Trump administration put in. However, the new North American trade deal that was put in between Mexico and Canada is an absolutely excellent uh, trade deal. And I see that being replicated to where there's an improved deal with the Pacific Rim countries and re-looking at what goes on with the EU. Okay, it's interesting. And the the transition itself, just we're in the middle of this kind of drama at the moment. How do you see that playing out over the next couple of months? It's it's hard to tell. Trump is a character, no doubt, no doubt about it. Uh, I think he wants to push all the buttons and make sure that the election was fair. And who knows what's real, you know, behind the behind the curtain. But I tr- truly do believe he loves this country. And he's not going to jeopardize a peaceful transition of power. Okay. I think he's going to postulate and that's just him. And then when it comes time, it's going to be completely, you know, a true transition that you see that is, that's what U.S. is known for. Yeah. I heard, I heard somebody saying that um, probably just before Christmas, he'll head down to Florida to Mar-a-Lago and uh, he may not actually come back to Washington afterwards. What do you reckon? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I doubt that. I doubt that because he's, you know, he he's a, he's a knucklehead. However, <laughs> he understands he understands the bigger picture. Yeah. Okay. We might just change uh, tack a little. Maybe just have a, a a little exploration of of your own person, if you like. So, when you're not working on the business or in the business, what do you like to do in your you know your own time, your discretionary time? Uh, probably the, the top three things. Um, the first thing is make sure my wife's happy because I spent so (laughs) much time. It's always very important. (laughs) (laughs) She looks at me and says, come on, time to go do something. But, um, we are both avid scuba divers and I'm an underwater photographer. 
So that's my passion outside of here. And then travel. Uh, I've been to 47 countries at least once. And it's, it's pretty typical without COVID for me to be into seven or eight countries in a given year between work and personal travel. And which uh, which countries stand out in your mind as ones that that impressed you, where you've been either for for, for the good or for the bad, but but that kind of made an impact on you? Um, I absolutely. Well, we have a common link. I absolutely love Spain. My wife's family is from Spain, so I really enjoy our time that we when we go there. I go. My wife goes four times a year, and I probably average two and a half times a year. And I absolutely love the time I spend in Spain. Uh, countries that scare me where I step back. And I think, I think anybody in a first world country needs to go spend a serious amount of time away from a U.S. hotel in a second or third world country. And when you do that, you appreciate everything we have. And it changes your total perspective on what you complain about. And you step away and you realize you're your gripes are really first world problems and you have to let them go and worry about the bigger picture. Yeah. And of the countries that you haven't visited as yet, where would you, well, you know, when this COVID thing is over, if you said, okay, Art, you go wherever the hell you want to go now, where would you go? The top few, I have never been to Ireland and that's very at the top of the list. My wife has family in Dublin. Okay. So yes. So we want to go visit them. Uh, I have not ever been on an African safari, so I want to go do that. And I want to go to Iceland and see the northern lights. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen them from Michigan where I grew up, but I want to go to Iceland and see those. And then I want to go to Antarctica. Those are the top four four on the list. Excellent. So and in in business and in coaching and mentoring and the people you've met, what's the best piece of business advice that you've ever received? And how have you in- integrated it into your work and your life? I, I try to, you know, you're, you are your own brand. And I learned that very early on that you have to build your brand right out of school. And I coach a group of young adults that are at uh, Michigan State University where I earned my degree in supply chain. And that's one of the first things I tell them is that you are your own brand. Connect with your peers at the university. Stay in contact with them and connect with your professors and stay in contact with them. Yeah, and and I guess that's why you've called your business after yourself. Uh, Your name is the name over the door, right? Yeah, yeah. And I got the advice from uh, a friend of mine, Becky Morgan, because I tried hiring some individuals and I thought about growing a consulting practice of six or eight people. And I decided that I just wanted to focus on what I do, what my message is and what I can bring. And then I have, I do have a team of people that help me from behind the scenes, but it's all about my, the message that I have. Uh, so those are, those are people who are not necessarily on the payroll, but they're people who are part of your your team as um, assessors or service providers. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. I have uh, I have a strategist that helps me with things. I have a social media manager. I have a uh, a web designer. I have a graphic artist, and I bring in some different 
consultants when I need some heavy lifting on some of the data to where, or another set of eyes a lot of times. This is, I guess, yeah. And I guess this is what technology enables us to do these days. Isn't that right? To, to create virtual teams, to bring more heft to bear where it needs to be brought to bear and then to dissipate or, or move apart when it's not needed. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's one of the things with COVID that's taught all of us. Uh, Many of us were doing it beforehand and people did not quite understand it or believe it was real. And my clients now with what they're seeing happen with COVID, they get the message I was trying to tell them that I wanted to do beforehand. Now they're saying, oh, this, okay, we get it. Okay, we're good with it. Yeah. So you save, save a lot of driving, save a lot of flying, right? Yeah. 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 Last year I flew, I think, 200 and almost 225,000 miles. And this year has been nothing and it's been nice. (laughs) Are you reading anything currently uh, that you would recommend to listeners? Yeah, I have two books. Uh, One of them is Cal Newport's uh, uh, Deep Work. Mm -hmm. And the other one is The Power of No. And it's about getting rejection and looking for no's and learning for no answers and seeing how you can develop and turn them into yes. And I absolutely love that. It's Rejection Proof by Ha Jin, and it's uh, J-I-A-H-I-A-N-G. And it's just fabulous. This guy, you know, was getting rejected and he turned it, he decided to turn it into a hundred days of rejections and see what he learns. And then Cal Newport's deep work. And what I really like about Cal Newport, I've been a fan of his for the past few years is we have so many distractions from uh, social media, phones, texts, and how do we focus on the real things that need to be done? Yeah. and get the deep work and the deep thoughts so. out. It's, it's amazing. Even even Drucker, uh, going back to 1967 and his effective uh, executive book, talks about that kind of stuff and talks about distraction in those days. Um, so today it's even, it's even more. And he talks about, you know, having to carve out what he calls quantum of time, minimum quantum of time to dedicate to important and strategic activities because otherwise you'll get nothing done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I tell you, I'm, I'm getting very comfortable with taking and not opening up my email, uh, and, you know, I'll open up maybe for five minutes in the morning, close it off until 10 o'clock at night and just focus on stuff I have to do. Uh, and it, I get a lot done. That takes some practice, doesn't it? Yes. And it's, it's scary the first few days. <laughs> <laughs> so to finish up then, Art, where can listeners find out more about you, more about your business, your thinking and so on, you know, in terms of writing, website, all of that kind of stuff? Um, my website is Arthur K-O-C-H mgt.com and right on there if they if you're interested in what, if you like what you hear sign up for my monthly newsletter and then you can find me on linkedin twitter instagram youtube with the same thing arthur mgt.com excellent excellent well art it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today so many thanks for being with us here 
Oh, thank you for inviting me and uh, look forward to doing this again. It's a lot of fun. Absolute pleasure. Thanks also to all of our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until the next time. 